Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, we, Megan Dom and Sarah Hader, humbly accept this mission to bring you conversations that are equal parts stunning, brave, and evolutionarily psychotic. Welcome to A Special Place in Hell. Um, and uh, welcome, Rebecca Traister. Our guest, very esteemed guest. So Rebecca, um, she uh, has a really long and impressive career. Rebecca, you're a writer at large for New York Magazine. You're the author of three books. Is that right? Three. Mm -hmm. I'm not yeah. leaving anything out. Big Girls Don't Cry, which was about the 2008 presidential election um, and its impact on women and feminism. All the Single Ladies, which deals with a lot of what we're talking about today, and most recently, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. So, okay, getting back to the Single Ladies, the conceit of this show is that Sarah and I look at women's issues through the lens of our 20-year age difference. Um, <laughs> and we're really interested in this new discourse around the so-called mating crisis and the marriage crisis. Um, you published an article in New York Magazine on September 22nd about this new discourse. So maybe we should just start by asking you when you started noticing this conversation uh, and what were your sort of initial thoughts about it? Well, I started noticing it in the in I guess over the past year it's been building and I knew that there were a couple of books that were set to publish. But I would say this is a new iteration of this discourse, but it is almost identical to waves of this same discourse that have happened really throughout American history, which is one of the things I learned when I was writing all the single ladies. But even within recent memory, right, there was a whole wave of this. In fact, when I went back to all the single ladies, when I was writing the column in September, I believe like the opening page is Ross Douthat, who's one of the people who's who's been engaged with this like marriage is a solution argument just over this past six months. Um, he was also, and I was writing that book from, let's see, 2011. It was published to 26, in 2016. It was five years of tracing this. The New York Times is constantly writing about this a lot. Brad Wilcox, who's one of the people who's very engaged in these arguments, has been, he runs the Marriage Project or whatever it's called at the University of Virginia. I know. He's I was in a debate with him one time. Yeah. <laughs> he's what debate he's a are you really- I was in a debate. Marriage? Were you debating marriage? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about it. I think I lost, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> but he's he's been engaged in this, like his whole career, it is his career, is sort of a, a, a academic marriage evangelism. Um, there is this new book that was recently published by Melissa Kearney, and a lot of the a lot of the commentary that I was responding to, I did read Kearney's book. Um and but then there were a lot there were a lot of like think piece columns up coming out of the publication of Melissa Kearney's book and Brad Wilcox is going to have a new book um, in in February and so it's just a reignition of a conversation that I promise you because I literally was writing about the last wave of it you know eight years ago happens again and again and again in the American media it, often in the New York Times and every time it happens the the 
first assertion is we never talk about marriage's role. And I'm like, no, we constantly talk about marriage's role. So, but in the most recent iteration, it was because Melissa Kearney has a new a, a new book out. She is um, at the University of Maryland. And, uh, you know, it's it's taking a look at the economic advantages of, it, in her view, the economic advantages of, um, you know, married couple family structure for children. And then there was also this happiness study that was done. Um, and I think Ross Douthat in the middle of the summer was the first to sort of tackle this, the Sam Peltzman happiness study, because there was this it's it's not exact it's not causal but it can be interpreted in a variety of ways about declining happiness um existing over the same period of time at which there have been declining marriage rates and so Ross Douthat and it was Ross Douthat's column was amazing it took Barbie as its as its um beginning point and suggested that like all of the unhappiness in the world um could probably be addressed if Barbie and Ken just got married, which was specifically hilarious if you watched the movie Barbie, in which Barbie and Ken like didn't like each other at all, really very much. Yeah, did he see the movie? No, no it was, was there wild. any indication he had seen the film yet? And yeah, it, it was amazing. Okay. So anyway, that's what prompted me to go back into this because I it has I'm I am very aware of the fact that like while I did spend years researching the history of marriage patterns and these kinds of media messages about marriage. Um, the kinds of messages that are sent to to men and to women and to men and women of different races and and economic strata, um, I have been out of that's that's not been an area that I've been like thinking about every day in the years since that book was published in 2016. But this new wave this summer of suddenly deciding that marriage was the answer, that we can solve our problems, we can solve our personal happiness problems, and we can make the world better for children, and we can solve economic inequality if everybody just got married again. That wave I noticed building this summer, and that's when I decided to write a column about it. Yeah, it's so funny because I stumbled upon your piece, and I was actually like a uh about two sentences into a long essay I was going to write about this and you, you covered a lot of what I was going to say. So it was a good excuse. <laughs> I'm sorry. To, uh, I think ab abandon my piece. No, no, no. I think Megan, I'm going to go back to it at some point. That has but... never stopped any of these guys who just write the same thing as no, each other I know, over and over but that, again. <laughs> but this is why we're women. This is why we're, we're, we're women. Yes. Um, so, okay. Sarah, do you, do you want to jump in here? There's, um, there's a lot to, uh, look at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought, so I, I haven't seen this discourse play out over and over. I'm kind of, because I'm, I'm That's new because she's, to, I'm she's new only to this. like 12 years old. So yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, actually 14 now, Megan. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, uh, but, <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, I, I guess my perspective is that I don't know if the messages have been the same for me as I think the messages that um, Rebecca, you're referring to and Megan that you experienced while you were growing up because I, um, you know, marriage was something that stupid women did, you know, like, especially when you're in college or, or thinking about graduating, like you, you, that this is not the time to pair, pair up and get married. And the very few women I knew who did um, get married early and start a family early, it was kind of, we kind of suspected that there was something, you know, like something wrong with them. Maybe they were, you know, not all that smart, or maybe they were just like weirdly religious or something. Like there was, there was a, there was an explanation for why that happened. 
and maybe this is a college thing. Well, it's a low um, status a thing, right? It was a low status and low ambition right. thing to get married young. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I guess I just um, coming into this with a very different understanding of what the discourse sounds like or what it has always sounded like to me up until this point, um, it, even among my friends, not too many, you know, I'm in my early 30s. Um, women are just starting to get married just now. And I think I was a kind of a weirdo among my peer group for being married, um, you know, in my late 20s. But that was just like a very odd thing to do um, and kind of suspicious. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something going on. There's some reason or whatever. But I, I remember, I think it was just a different climate. So I think that that's interesting. Um, and I wonder if that has something to do with uh, kind of this new trend of, trad people you know very just like tradism as something that's growing among the youth almost as a youth movement and it doesn't seem like something that's pressured by parents at all and I wonder Rebecca if you have noticed this also and what do you think about it so I want to go back to something you said where you were like maybe this is just a college thing because I think we're getting at a couple different issues simultaneously right there's marriage and not marriage and then there's later marriage okay and the thing that so so the people most likely to get married, so by that, just are you going to get married or not get married? And and if that's the trad filter for like, are you going to get married and possibly have kids within a marriage? The population in the United States wildly, and this is something that Douthat and everybody are addressing in their columns, are college graduates. So you actually, in that, when it comes to marriage as the traditional path, right, you're actually not going to find a population in the United States right now that is more likely to go down that path than people who are mm -hmm. at college. The thing mm -hmm. that you're describing, right, and, and it's actually some of the economic inequality that Melissa Kearney and Ross Douthat and Nick Kristoff, that they're all talking about, um, I think, in ways that aren't beginning to get at the cause and effect here, right, um, is that when marriage ceased to be, so, so it used to be the reverse, in fact, because women were dependent, and I'm not talking just about when Megan and I were in college, I'm talking about like for lots of history preceding this, right? Where the path, because there was um, a, a set of conditions, economic dependence, right? In which women were not in a position to get the same kinds of educations, earn money at the same scale, own property, participate civically, economically at the same um level as men. And in which, of course, at that point, we we're talking pretty exclusively about hetero unions being socially sanctioned and certainly, you know, the kinds of marriages you could enter. Also, in a pre-sexual revolution era in which if you wanted to have a sex life that would that did not put you at risk for social censure um, or bearing a child out of wedlock. So in this era, in, an, in earlier eras, marriage was women were much more likely to be economically, socially, and sexually dependent. Women were much more likely to be dependent on marriage and on men if they wanted to have those kinds of things in economic security, um, you know, living security, a place to live, being able to have a part of having property, having a family that was within social bounds, right? All of that. And so marriage was sort of a marker for adulthood. You had to enter it you know, whether that meant when you were 18, when you were 20, right? Marriage ages until the 1990s, um, the median age for, for marriage for women stayed below 22. And it was only in the 1990s that it started to rise, right? 
But at that point, it wasn't coming right out of second wave feminism. Like, oh, no, second wave feminism actually wasn't particularly concerned with challenging marriage. There was a big divorce boom because it was it was concerned with challenging questions of gender equality that made a lot of marriages that were entered into in earlier eras suddenly seem unsatisfying in certain way, in a lot of different ways. So there was a divorce boom. And then a lot of the kids who came out of that divorce boom were finding themselves coming into adulthood in the 1990s. And a whole bunch of things had changed, including that they had lived through the ends of those unhappy marriages. And unlike earlier eras, if they did want a partner, wanted to find one that they thought was going to be stable, which can sometimes take longer than whoever you know when you're 21 or 22. Um, and so they might they started delaying marriage. And also there were educational and economic opportunities for them to pursue if they were not just beginning their adulthoods by marrying or starting a family. There were lots of other things, whether that was school, whether it was work, whether it was having a, a active social life that wasn't based around one romantic or sexual relationship, whether it was having an active sex life that was varied um, and experimental. And but the people who were still likely to marry just at later ages were the people who had gone to college and had economic foundations and and educations that gave them the kinds of resources that then they felt were they were in a position to begin a family, whether that was at 28, whether it was at 32, whether it was at 40. And at that point, then they're joining those resources, often with another person who also had those advantages, meaning that the people who were most likely to be getting married were the ones who are already economically secure. And then they were combining their resources, making them exponentially more economically secure. And the place where marriage rates was actually falling out, where it was, where people weren't getting married, are people who didn't have that kind of economic foundation. Um, and, and so that's the thing that I would say about your experience is that in a way you viewed it as a rebuke to traditionalism, right? Like that women who were, who got married early were somehow were frowned upon. But in fact, if you were in college, you were in the population where marriage was actually the, one of the places in the United States where marriage was still a norm. It was just later. And it was the, the fact that you might've done it earlier that made you feel, um, like you were at odds with your, with your peer group. So I'm not, you know, I, and I think it's worth noting that there is that difference. Well, but I wonder if there's a difference between the extent of the aspiration. I mean, the, so there's the, the fact that it happens, right? Like with, with college age people, marriage might actually happen in a way that it's not happening among lower income Americans. But I wonder if that necessarily means that the aspirations uh, reflect that because I I think that in the in you know both my personal experiences with you know people who are not where I am now but how I grew up which is lower income America um, marriage is still a very very much an aspired to state um, but it is not happening I think partially because it is like such an aspirational thing and it you have to have this wedding and then you have to stay committed forever and I think part of the reason that it's not happening for them um is because they put so much um into it and it's so meaningful so it's a more difficult step to take in some ways um and I, so I wonder if 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 you know the aspiration reflects 
um, the reality of whether or not it happens. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm also curious about your reasoning a little bit there with, you know, it, it, it if you are upper class um, or, you know, a well-to-do kind of white collar American and you get married, then together your incomes increase, you know, now you have a dual income household and you're even better off than you were before. Why is that something that, that the, why would that logic not work in the same way if you were a lower income American? Like, it, it, like it, in other words, like, should we be encouraging marriage um, among lower income Americans? Because it has this benefit of, you know, now you're living in a dual income household. So first of all, we definitely have been encouraging marriage. You're, you're talking about the messages you got socially in college. The both the Bush and the Obama administrations poured millions and millions of dollars into marriage education um, programs, like through community centers, through church. Um, there's so there's the there was an actual government investment in educating people and especially low income communities about marriage. There's an incredible piece by Catherine Boo about this. I can't. It's called the Marriage Project. I can't remember what it was called. It's it's, it's incredible. Um, these programs were running through two sets of presidential administrations, Democratic and Republican. Then you add onto that, like the enormous cultural pressure. And I know that what you're describing yourself as having been a college student is, is very real. And there is the sort of like, oh, am I at odds with my peers because I'm settling down early? And I don't mean to take away from that. But more broadly in culture, everything, say yes to the dress, like romantic comedies, every, like we still have a culture that still treats marriage in almost every conceivable form as a happy ending. Right. And so hmm. I think there are all kinds of messages being sent to people, as well as the actual, like, truly economic investment of two presidential administrations. And I, I should get the actual numbers about how much money they poured into this, but it was a massive priority for them. None of those programs, did it work? No. Yeah. They did. Yeah. It did not raise marriage rates at all. When I was writing my book, and I want to say that I, this is one of the things where, I published my book in 2016, and I don't know how to date this is, but I can tell you that when I was writing my book, I looked for programs that had worked when it came to increasing marriage rates, right? And there were two examples that I could find at that time. Again, eight years ago, there might be 20 other things we could talk about now that I just am not up to date on. But in 2016, there were two programs that had inadvertently, it was raised marriage rates, but more, but also lowered divorce rates. And they were welfare programs <laughs> that had accidentally, because it, one, one was literally a program that had gone on longer than it was supposed to, like somebody forgot to turn it off and it was a job training and welfare program, that, that the population that was getting the benefits wound up divorcing at much lower rates, right? There is so much research. And this is the thing that is, that's where I would argue about, okay, me, I don't care about boosting marriage rates. But if you did care about boosting marriage rates, it seems very clear to me, both from America's history and like just logically now, that the way you do it would actually to be increase economic security. When you talk about the yearning for marriage as an ideal, right, in communities where it's not likely to happen, part of what we yearn for when we yearn for marriage, like lots of us as human beings may yearn or may not, but many of us yearn for love, companionship, connection, sex, satisfaction. Some people yearn for family or any kind of community, a, a unit, right? Families that come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, like sure, that is a very human thing. A specific yearning for marriage or, or like 
permanently committed partnership, however you want to describe it, right, seems to me in part to be a yearning for stability and safety, right? And we know that part of that we get from our human relationships, but that those relationships are themselves more precarious and combustible if you have other kinds of, you have other kinds of insecurity around them, right? Like the, that the part of what, when the a yearning for marriage is also a yearning for solidity, for permanence, for safety. And the fact is you can be married all you want. And if you don't have money, that marriage isn't going to provide that. It may have all kinds of economic, it may have, I'm sorry, it may have all kinds of emotional benefits. And I don't like, of course, but but also part of what you're yearning for is is a level of safety that also comes from economic security. That is but doesn't not, marriage provide that? You know, economic security that? not in not inherently. If you're talking about communities that are economically precarious themselves, in fact, like the the kinds of dependence that marriage can create, right? When there's not, if you if you're married and you have kids, and one of you doesn't make enough for childcare and gives up a job, or you're both working multiple shift jobs and you don't have childcare and you're not seeing each other because you're working those multiple shift jobs. There's the, the fantasy of, of two incomes, but if those incomes, neither of which are actually sustainable, then no marriage by itself isn't going to create an economic stability in a, in, in, a but it's still better than is not. I mean, even in not that, necessarily. I, not I, I see your point, which is that it's better than it's 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 still a bad situation. But surely it's still better that you have two combined incomes or even support. You know, when but it comes to child. So in the example of like parents who can't, you know, can't afford childcare, well, at least you have two parents so somebody can stay home with the children. But what do you do if you're a single mother, or maybe- you know, you don't have that? Well, any number of things, including living with other relatives who might be there to do child support, child care, which is what a lot of people, of course, do, right, in multi-generational homes, including sometimes when you're Mm -hmm. married, right? But but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in which you're in other kinds of communities, the other question is the emotional dimensions of marriage, right? Not all marriages are stable and happy, right? And that's true no matter what your income level is. And, but the places where, you know, those studies I mentioned where the, the increased economic security led to more marital stability itself in part was because economic stresses themselves cause all kinds of other problems that make marriages more volatile, which is not to say, I am in no way suggesting that marriages between economically, uh, challenged people are inherently more volatile, but they can within communities where there's volatility and financial anxiety and poverty and struggles over sleep and work and childcare. I mean, I know from my economically secure marriage that the times that we have been most at odds and most stressed are when we have money challenges. Right. And no, I I mean, and I agree with that, but that still doesn't take away from the, I mean, it it would still be the case, even if it's volatile, the, the, I guess my point is just that it would still be an easier life if you're married 
even with all the vol- volatility. I mean, what is the data? This seems like the data, especially when it comes to child rearing. I mean, I think we should be clear that most of the data that comes out around this has to do with like the the, the effects for the benefits for children. I mean, and and I don't want, I actually want to want to jump ahead to like a, a little bit more of our current conversation. But just to be clear, like, is it are we agreeing that the data is showing that children do better in households where the parents are actually married? I mean, is that how, that's what Melissa, that that's what Melissa Kearney would say. If Melissa Kearney were here, this is the this is the argument of her book. I think that there mm-hmm. are a lot of I think there are a lot of questions about where that data comes from and what what is doing better mean? Does it mean doing better in school? Does it mean um does it mean more economic security? What does it mean to live in a house? So so one of the questions that I frequently want to get at, and Melissa Kearney in her book writes um, very early on, she says, I'm an economist. Everybody has a different story. This is not my area of expertise is different stories of, you know, what it's like to be in these in marriages. Right. I'm looking at just the numbers. I think that when it comes to questions of marriage, like Sarah, your your view of a marriage, in fact, the marriage that we all aspire to, right? If we were to think of marriage, if we were to say, yes, sure, I would like to be married, which not everybody does have that thought. But if you do have that thought, you're imagining, we're all imagining a happy marriage in which you're known, in which you're supported, in which you offer support, in which there's a mutuality, in which there's cooperation. But any of us who've been in any relationships, marriage or not, that have been unsatisfying, know that that is, that's actually really hard, right? It's, it's very rare to come across a a partnership that is so satisfying. And so what does it mean to be good for kids too, is a whole other question that I think um, opens up. Uh, You know, what does it mean to, if you have two incomes, right? The, the scenario you propose, and yes, there's tons of data that says, Married people get better health care, right? They get, if they're sick, right? Having a spouse who can well, take- obviously, because if, so, if one, all you need is one person with insurance. So yes. Insurance, absolutely. Which is another example of how our economic policies like shift even what the terms of partnership mean. But, but even the fact of like, if there, I wrote about this in my book, like there's a lot of studies that say people who have sick, who are sick with cancer or something live longer if they're married absolutely true, right? Um, there's so many benefits and so many savings. Bella DePaulo, who writes about singlehood all the time, is really good on like the taxes on being single, which means like down to things like if you get a hotel room, right? As a single person, you're basically paying double than if you get that same hotel room and you're staying in it with your spouse, right? Which it's the same price. It's still a $250 hotel room, but are you sleeping there by yourself for $250 or are you st- sleep- sleeping there with a partner yeah, for 125 You can sleep each? better. Right. Sleep better if you're staying so, in that room by yourself. So I don't want to suggest that there's not obviously, sh- sure, having more hands, having more income, absolutely. But if it's if we're talking about those hands and that income and the resources only by describing them as through co- coming through marriage, I think we're in a very tricky place because the quality of those marriages, what is you know. Is it better for kids to be raised by two parents who are unhappy, you know, who might have 
and his parents might have an abusive relationship, an angry relationship, yelling, tension, anxiety, stress, and have the two incomes of those married parents? Or is it better for them to be with a, one of those parents and, a, you know, and a grandparent or aunts and uncles or what, you know, like, I, I think that these kinds of qualitative yeah. I mean, things- and I, and I- I would agree with you that it's, but you know, in that case, and with an, an abusive situation, it is. It might be better for the for, for the family to not be a family, oh, really, like for that to be like a, yes. a, a single parent situation. But there's so many marriages who are, that are just somewhere in between, you know, like there's the, the this perfect romantic happiness thing. I don't think that happens with anyone, or even with really really healthy couples. There are times where this is, you know, it's an unsatisfying place. Maybe you just want to go away for a little while um, and have a break away from the family. I think that happens. So I I think that if we're not addressing this whole gray area where there's, you know, you're not perfectly happy, you're not in an abusive marriage either, um, what do you do then? Like, you know, and, and in, in that scenario, in this moderate kind of average marriage scenario, you're not, so the, not the most satisfying relationship you've ever had in your life. However, they're a nice person, they're a good you know, they're a good parent, whatever. In that scenario, is it still um, a kind of partnership that is valuable, particularly for, I guess, lower income Americans? I get, I, th- I think that's where I, my, my intuitions run very differently. And I think part of it is because I come from, you know, my parents were immigrants. I'm an immigrant. Um, uh, and, and I grew up with lower income Americans. We were lower income Americans for a very long time. And I saw around me many, many people who did not have, you know, a two parent household. Um, And I saw, you know, directly, you know, how that impacted the children. I mean, not, not not as if they were hollow and broken or anything like that, but they were like literally unsupervised sometimes and engaging in some harmful things. My neighbor, um, I remember got hurt very badly one time, but there was no parent around. His dad was at work. Um, and his in mom the seventies, that gone. happened even with married well, parents. Yeah, by the way, say, yeah, right, right, right. Everybody. at some point you parents. can find a parent, though, right? <laughs> I mean, you could find a parent at some point. Like it's, it's, there was a, a an adult around, but in in the in his case, nobody was around and nobody was going to be around. But my parents were there, and so we drove him to the hospital because he needed he needed yeah. uh, to get stitched up but it was it, it's a, it's like little things like that and i couldn't you know i can't help but think that of course that adds up and that adds up i thought even then as a child that i'm privileged in a way that these you know my neighbors are not privileged i have some i have a kind of support that is far it is far stronger than what they have and it's not as if my parents marriage was like you know I mean, they they like each other a lot. They respect each other a lot. There's a lot of love there, but it's an arranged marriage. It's not, you know, it's not arranged, a big romance. It's arranged it's not, marriage. That's a whole other conversation. Marriage, no, but, you know, it's not okay. a big romance. They I want Rebecca to respond to this, and then I want to shift shift a little bit because um, uh, I know we have limited time with her. But, Rebecca, do you have an immediate response? Yeah, to I mean, that? my response is, look, I'm not anti-marriage. I'm marriage. I'm, mar- I'm married. I'm married. I am heteronormy <laughs> married, okay? I am like a white middle class woman, and sure. I'm very conscious of that, right? I am in no way anti-marriage. My pushback is not against marriage for everybody. Like I would like all the the people that you're talking about who are yearning for marriage, but not getting it. I would like everybody to be able to find more. I don't 
personally, I don't care whether anybody's married. I want people to be able to live the lives that they want to live to the best of their ability, understanding that nothing's perfect and nobody gets everything they want, right? I would like people who yearn for partnership to find partnership. I would like for people who want to have children with a partner to have those children with a partner. I, the part I don't, I don't, I just don't, agree with, and I think it winds up having terrible detrimental effects, is privileging marriage as the path or the solution. And the, the example you just gave of like the neighbors around who got into things, I can tell you that growing up in a predominantly white, um, middle-class, but blue-collar middle-class suburb in the early 80s, that was tr like, there were those kids all over my neighborhood. And it was in some cases, my family, and in some cases, another family, and they were the children of married people too, right? I don't think marriage is the determining factor. I think economic stability is a determining factor. And I think that if you look at the history of populations where marriage rates have skyrocketed, besides that welfare thing I was talking about, if you look at where the United States government has made investments in housing, in education, in jobs, in infrastructure. That is the story of the development of the white middle class in the United States in the middle of the 20th century, where the United States government got into the business of providing economic stability and housing for white a white middle class. And that is when marriage rates hit their highest mark in this country's history. It was in the 1950s and 60s after World War II. And, and so personally, I don't care if there are more people who are married or not. I don't think marriage is its own special category of magic. But for people who want marriage, the best way to get it would be to invest in their economic security and stability first. I want to ask you, Rebecca, what you think about this, because I think Sarah and I are both really fascinated by this kind of discourse around hypergamy. Okay, there's that term, the mating crisis. So now what we've had in the last... 10 years. I mean, arguably 20 years, because now we're, we're 20 years into hookup culture, raunch culture, you know, the kinds of things that I think you and I as observers were talking about in the early aughts, the kind of girls gone wild, sex positivity, that kind of culture. A lot of the sort of critics, the Ross Douthats, even the Jordan Petersons of the world are talking about how the combination of that kind of social culture and women's um, rising economic status, the fact that you have more women graduating from college now, you have, I mean, I think some like some statistics, like the, the, the majority of men under 30 are actually living in their parents' house. I think that that is actually, there is data on that. So you have all these conditions that is making it very hard for people to pair up. Um, and so you have a lot of discussion about women not being able to find partners. You have men complaining that women say they're not good enough. Women, they have, you know, now that they have this higher economic status, they want to marry either somebody of their own status or higher. That's the hypergamy concept. And so okay, there's an argument that this, these dynamics are resulting in a marriage crisis in that nobody can even like go on dates, let alone get married. So I wonder what your thoughts are about that whole gestalt. Uh, well, I have many thoughts, no particularly cogent answers. I mean, I think that the thing about raunch culture and hookup culture is so weird because there was this panic when we were in our 20s about a kind of post-sexual revolution, raunch ladies, whatever. 
But meanwhile, if you look at the statistics for the past 20 years, like teenagers are having less sex than they were in the 1980s. Like people aren't right. This isn't um, the notion of sort of a hypersexualized youth that is dragging people away from traditional models of coupling. I don't think that that I don't think that that has borne out. But are they sexting instead? Okay, but wait, hang on. Maybe. Sorry to interrupt you. But like, yeah, I, no, actually, no, no, I, I think you're right. I think that there there is this like hypersexualized culture and, you know, this kind of cartoonish, hyper feminine kind of, you know, cartoonish versions of sexuality. But yeah, I think you're right. Maybe like people are doing OnlyFans, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're actually having sex. Right. So I think that there's a whole lot of stuff happening that I am, I don't feel particularly equipped to weigh in on, you know, is any kind of expert around online pornography, access to sexual satisfaction without actually being with another person. That is probably true for, for, everybody of all genders, right? Like that there is, there's, there's such massive social changes because of our phones and our technology. And I neither want to be a booster for that technology, nor like a Luddite about it. Right. I, I just don't like, I, it's beyond, that is beyond my realm of expertise, but I can say as a casual observer and a person in the world that I think that an entire um, the generations are growing up with just a very different relationship to sex than how I did. And so, and of course my relationship to sex was incredibly different from how my mother was raised, you know, when she came of age in the 1960s. So, um, and, and I don't know enough to be able to read that, um, effectively. I do think that what you're observing about the move away from, um, traditional hetero pairing or just pairing in general, um, is something that you see globally, right? Like you've, you've, in Japan, for instance, there is a crisis, not only around marriage, but around dating, right? Where, and there are a lot of different readings of why that is, whether it's the, a, a work culture in Japan, that whether it's the, um, whether it is sort of gender roles that have been much more resistant to change and therefore Japanese women not wanting to enter into relationships in which they're not going to be able to exercise degrees of autonomy. Um, there's a lot of speculation about that, but the United States is not alone in its total changing relationship oh, no, to how we live, how we live our adulthoods. Um, and I, again, like, I don't know that I have answers to this. I will say that the changing, the, the, the world for women and for gender non-conforming people is entirely remade, right? There are just the, and, and I think that the degree to which the shifts of, you know, the past century, the past half century, in terms of what is available to women and the span of what's available to women. And I'm not saying that this is like everybody's, thrilled about it, but like, there's just so many, there's a, there, the ability for sexual liberty for professional, um, and educational and economic lives that were not possible for my mother's, gen you know, that were just beginning to be conceived of for my mother's generation, um, means that there's like entirely new terrain. That's also new terrain for men. And there is no question that, that the terms that we were raised with understanding about how adult life was supposed to proceed are, are, radically shifted and that there are certainly um frustrations 
resentments, loneliness, all of that stuff. And it's tied. I don't think it's possible to take out one single strand. Um, but I also think that there are still a lot of people coupling. I think that there's a lot of panic over the move away from coupling as we have known it in earlier periods. And that Right. Sure. We are moving away from that. But I also think that there's this world that makes it seem like nobody's having sex. Nobody's hooking up. Nobody's dating. Nobody's getting married. And actually, and nobody's living together. You know, nobody's forming families. And I actually don't think that's the case. I think it's, I think things are changed well, we... and they're not like, if you compare, I, and one of the arguments I made in 2016 is that in fact, it was an ability to evolve with changing gender like for marriage itself to evolve, to become a more egalitarian institution, to marriage equality, right? To expand, to take on lots of different cultural, economic, political changes around gender that have permitted it to persist in the United States as an institution that is still relevant um, in a way that is much, is, is, has been harder in places that have been more resistant to those kinds of changes and evolution. Well, but we do know that there is a repla population replacement crisis. I mean, look, as recently as 2015, I published a book about choosing not to have kids and I was running all over the place talking about overpopulation and how we didn't need to have kids and people needed to think twice about that. I mean, e even at the time, I was making a very big point of saying most people do want to have kids. The people right. who don't are outliers and that should be respected. However, um, I think that I, I, along with a lot of other people, have had to really reckon with the fact that there's not a population bomb. There never was. And I mean, there is, I don't know if you want to use the word crisis, but there is a problem of people not having bigger, not, big enough families. I mean, my thing is like, people who want to have families should be helped in having as many kids as they want. The people who don't want kids should be left alone. If you don't want kids, you shouldn't have them. It's probably a good sign that you shouldn't have them, but people should be helped to have bigger families. But it seems like just because of all these factors, it's really, really hard for people to, to pair up and have families. I mean, we do know that they're not having sex. I mean, the data is there. They are not having sex as much as they used to. Right. No, no, no. That's part of what, right. So they're not having sex as much as they are used to. But I also think that, I mean, I'm panicked about a lot of things. I'm panicked about a lot. <laughs> well, you're on our show. Right. <laughs> Welcome to our world. Yeah. And what do you, <laughs> I am among the things I am not panicked about. And maybe I, I mean, and here is where I am. And that's not to say that I am not, anxious like the stuff we were talking about before about relationships porn you know phones how we interact socially all that's changing stuff which i is obviously tied to everything about and this is this is not about marriage this is about like alienation climate crisis gun violence like all the, the democracy on the edge all these things are interconnected in ways that i think are above all of our pay grades and in fact above the human right like you can't just pull out one strand and so if we're talking about one strand which is people having sex in different ways than they used to and coupling in different ways than they used to this is not among my top 10 panics i think that in part it's i think i think in part our ideas of what's normal are have often been manufactured by 
um, economic and political forces, right? So frequently when I talk about marriage, I get all of these like images of a sort of sort of Norman Rockwell, mid 20th century norm of what a nuclear family is supposed to look like, right? That was entirely man manufactured. Yeah. And it was manufactured for white people. Um, you go back to the early part of the 20th century and you look at Teddy Roosevelt talking about race suicide because he was incredibly anxious about how many children immigrant families were having, and yet white people at that period were marrying at a much lower rate and not reproducing as often for a variety of, of reasons that were also tied to westward expansion, to the economy, to new opportunities for education, all this kind of stuff, um, to wars. Like So many of these, our mating patterns have changed radically again and again and again and again. So while I am not discounting conversations about how those changes are currently manifesting themselves and what kind of power imbalances they're revealing, what kind of power adjustments are creating resentments, frustrations, and loneliness. I'm not saying it's not like, but it's, it's not in my, I don't think a shift in how people are mating is a out of line historically with repeated shifts in how people meet in response to socioeconomic realities and, and, and global realities. Um, and B it's like, it's not, in my, I'm not worried about the population replacement crisis as one of my top 10 worries at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I, a little bit of the last bit was cut out, but I, I, you know, I, I am one of those people who's concerned about the population crisis, mostly because I see it as tied to the economy. I think technology can potentially solve this for us but it would have to be a truly um and it would have to be something truly revolutionary um and i am i am thinking that so much of uh what we have been able to build um and so many freedoms that we have as individuals rest on this kind of economic prosperity we have um, that I think we're taking for granted and that a halving of the population would impact severely. And then we go back to the place in which, you know, children are now no longer just like this experience that you want to have because it's fulfilling or whatever, but an economic necessity because who's going to take care of you um, when you're older and your investments don't mean anything. So from that perspective, I am a little bit of a doomer about it. Um, and I hope that I'm entirely wrong and some magical technology comes that, 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 that solves all this problem. And I'm perfectly happy to have the government give me more money to have, uh, children. I don't, I wouldn't mind that at all. Um, so, so if somebody wants my, to take that up, <laughs> that's what we have our paid subscribers for though. We don't need but, the government. but here's my, here's my question is if that, so hearing you and hearing that you also say that you think more people should be being married, should be getting married. Because again, I think that, I think where I'm with you is I want a more stable economy. And I believe that if we invested more in social safety nets and increased, and, and Megan, what you were saying, I, unlike you, I'm not interested in the government supporting big families. I'm interested in government support of families in any shape that they are made that people want them. To, I want, I want to see people in all varieties of families choosing and not, you know, and on their own to have the kind of economic and social security, um, that would, that would create 
more stability and less of a chasm between the wealthy and everybody else. And it is my hypothesis that if that security, if, if we got to that place of security, you actually probably would see more kids. So that would not, and more, probably more, more marriages or more like committed partnerships, though that is not my end goal in wanting that level of security. So my question for you is what, mm. Sarah, what would you want to see happen to encourage more marriage? To encourage more marriage. That's interesting. Um, I think to some degree, um, the function of marriage has changed so radically in our society. So there's, this is a long way of saying I don't have an answer. Um, uh, because I don't think marriage marriage today is what it was 50 years ago. It doesn't serve the same purpose and it wouldn't even make sense to serve the same purpose. Um, but I wonder if it, if some kind of cultural messaging shift could be, could be beneficial. Um, I don't think that marriage is a capstone, uh, you know, achievement at the top of this long, you know, journey of, of finding yourself is necessarily the best model for much of America. I think it is maybe the, the right model for some of Americans. I think it might be, it might've been the right model for me. It, it, it is the right model for people who can, you know, afford IVF. But if, if you can't afford to do that, you want to have a certain kind of um, family life. I think that encouraging families, uh, family formation and, and like marriage really at kind of an early stage might be uh, a, something we should be doing um, and it might be beneficial. Part of that might be just like taking it down a notch in terms of oh, it's this incredible achievement that you get at the end um, of this, you know, when you're stable, when you can afford a big wedding, when you can uh, afford to invite your entire family. Um, I, I know that there are downsides to that as well. I know that that means that some young people will have a different kind of uh, you know, uh, they won't be able to go to Africa. They won't be able to go to graduate school, maybe, or maybe they will, but later. Um, I know that that's going to change people's life trajectories. I'm not sure if this is something young, if this is a message young people are willing to um, accept. You know, when I talk to younger women, they 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 want to go to Africa. You know, they want to do, they want to live life in their 20s. They want to go, you know, far and wide. They want to read. They want to, you know, uh, they want to have experiences. And that's wonderful. And I think it's it's great that they have all these aspirations. I also see many of those same kind of women. I'm in the D.C. area. I see women in their late 30s having a very different kind of experience. And sometimes looking back, you know, at, at their 20s and early 30s and thinking that maybe they should have approached things a little bit differently um i'm not i'm not sure i have an answer because i'm not sure if anyone's going to listen you know you, you know what i just want to also just jump in i mean rebecca one of the um interesting things that's come up in our conversations is like this idea of being made aware that there's a biological clock and that your fertility is limited like i feel like i grew up constantly with that message like every Me time too. you opened a women's magazine it yes. was like you know it's tick tock ladies it was do you, it was do like you remember that. but Sarah yeah, yeah. Vanessa Gregoriadis' no, no, like cover story on in New York magazine I, I mean I remember I was it was constant talk tick tock tick tock tick tock yes yeah but you know it's funny because so Sarah talks about how this really did come up and I do think in some corners, there was a shift at some point where there was an idea that 
bringing this up was a right wing sort of unfeminist or right wing meme. I mean, it was funny because the when, wall, I, right? when I was out um, talking about my um, book about choosing not to have children, I remember I was in this I was in this podcast interview and it was two podcast hosts and they were very friendly to the subject. And they said something like, well, you know, everybody's always telling women there's a biological clock. And I said, well, actually, there is a biological clock like there actually is. And that's something that needs to be. Um, addressed in in a realistic way and people need information and they like cut that part out of the interview because it somehow wasn't on brand with the way we were talking about this kind of freedom and and you know women having choices and all of that and so you know I don't I don't know how pervasive that is and I mean maybe Sarah you were just absent that day but it does sound like a lot of women your age either either have the idea that they can freeze their eggs and that I think it's a perfect solution that, and, and yeah. that it's much more affordable and it's much more viable than it actually is. Um, and I, I assumed this, you know, I just assumed it was this because you hear it on this, you know, the, these kind of gross places online where, you know, oh, you you know, yeah, TikTok, your eggs are, you know, just right, one these by gross one. guys with the empty egg carton meme. Right. I right. mean, so they're the this, ones yeah, we're talking right. about it. They're yes. the ones we're talking about. And that's an easy person for me to dismiss. And I didn't hear about it from anywhere, anyone else. So that was, okay, well, well, let me just set that aside. That's probably not true. A lot of what they say is not true. So that I'm not going to think about it anymore. And I did not have uh, any other source that I did trust really bring this up as a legitimate issue and and approach it as something that might be cause for women to choose differently. Usually it's just like, oh, let's have better investments in, in IVF and like, like let's make that mo- more possible for more people. And I think that is one approach. But the other approach also is to just you know, make different life choices at different places and, you know, in, at different times in your life. I was impacted a lot by moving to the DC area when I did um, uh, about, you know, 12 years ago, I moved here and I, and I fell into a group of, of women who were older. Um, and I saw again and again, the same sort of struggle at their late thirties. Um, this recognition for the first time that there's a biological clock, that there's a biological limit and it seemed as if, uh, you know, to me that they were more surprised than they should have been. Um, and I was actually surprised on their behalf as well. I thought they had more time. Um, but but it, it, it turns out to be kind of a nasty experience, one that I wanted to avoid. And so I, you know, it, 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 keeping that in mind, I made different choices. So I wonder if this is just, you know, I don't, I don't feel as if that, that there's enough open discussion about this. So my, my reporting, so I was in college years before you were, and like Megan, I came of age in the 20, in my twenties in New York, in the, like the two thousands when it was very, I mean, all I heard was your, your, I mean, the thing about like every year you lose eggs every second after whatever age, I mean, God, things that haunted me through the two thousands. Right. And also I also, we were going to all die of AIDS. That was the other thing, but yeah, yeah I, other thing. I, 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 that was more I, my time. <laughs> that, yeah. That would, that might be just our few years difference because that was, um, I, I, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you missed out, but well, no, I remember AIDS, but I was, and safe sex and condoms, but it was the, 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 
peak of it when I was in college, there was a cocktail and that made it, that changed so much about AIDS. Yeah. No, I, that, I think those futures so, make a huge difference. Anyway, yeah. sorry, go ahead. So, but I did, I was raised on terror of like your fertility is waning and it's a tick, tick, tick clock and everything. Um, and then when I, so my perspective on what you're describing, I don't know what you, I'm trying to do the math on what years you were in college, Sarah, but when I was doing my reporting for all the single ladies, I was talking to college students and to women in their twenties. And uh, they were also, what what I was told by them, and this would have been, in, again, between 2012 and 2015 when I was doing this reporting, was that it was a constant balance in their minds, that they were doing a whole lot of math in their head at all times. And it was, it's like, hmm. it's hard. I don't, I'm, I don't, like, these kinds of decisions are, like, they're really hard to make. The, the choices we make in our lives, like, we... Most of us aren't dumb. We know that the things that we're cho choosing have consequences, right? And um, what I remember hearing and being really struck by was that there was this constant math equation in a lot of their heads, which was like, okay, so do I want to, and, and some of them had boyfriends in college who wanted to get married. One of the things I found in the reporting I was doing with college students in those years was that a lot of them had had male partners who wanted to settle down and they didn't want to because they were afraid of sort of the inverse of what you're describing, which of course was true for a lot of history, which is um, choosing to marry and have kids young, right? Um, and then the inverse of the kind of regret and surprise that you describe in the women in their, 30, in their later 30s who are like, oh God, I didn't realize what I'm might have sacrificed here. The inverse of that, which was more the, the long-term historical model was women having children in their twenties and their early twenties, and then getting, getting to their late thirties and the children are grown and they're like, Oh God, I don't have whatever fill in the blank. You know, I, I didn't actually know anybody whose dream was to travel around the world, <laughs> but, um, but maybe that, you know, I didn't, or I didn't, I don't have an, I don't have a career. I'm not economically stable. I'm dependent on a, a partner. I didn't get the degree. I didn't get the education I wanted to get. I don't have the money to do it now. Like those kinds. So I think that that the notion of getting halfway through your life and realizing that whatever the set of choices you made, whether it was around partnership, whether it was around children, whether it was around education and career, that there are in like, there are inherent trade-offs in that is sobering for people who take all kinds of paths, right? And the thing that I would advocate for more than anything, and I think that the young women I interviewed were doing this, like, okay, but if I do this, then this, and if I do this, and then this, and that's a burden, it's a burden, but like, that's also what life is, right? Is these trying to figure out how the choices we make. And when we're talking about college people, we're talking about people who have more resources to make more choices more freely. Um, Anyway, I, the the young people who I spoke to were aware of it, but it wasn't the only looming threat in their head. That is what I would say. It was there was an awareness of waning fertility. There was an awareness of like, oh my god, uh, you know, uh, IVF, but, and including from people where I was saying like, you're 23. What are you talking about? Don't worry. You know, where I was sort of doing the reverse, like, ah, you know, this doesn't. Your your eggs are not bad. You're 24 years old, right? Um, but but there were also like, okay, but what if I do wind up right now starting a family and I don't pursue this thing I'm passionate about intellectually or professionally? What if I don't 
build a solid economic base for myself. So, you know, there, there were those concerns too. And it was more of a balancing act than, um, than what I remember going through. And the other thing is that I think gets left out of this a lot. And a lot of these conversations, which come down to marriage or not marriage or early children or not children is who are you with or not with who have you met or not met, you know, and when, and like the, the person who might be a great partner for rearing children might not show up in your life (laughs) until you're 50. What does that mean? What does that mean about the choices you make? Do you want children? Do you not want children? The thing that I like would, would wish as far as messages sent to women, I wish for the economic supports and this and the economic support of all these different paths, right? That's the top thing. And that's something that I think is controllable by policy and therefore something to advocate for the messaging that I would want to send to women is actually maybe the inverse of what you're talking about, which is to think about the things that you most want to pursue and most think you, and it'll change over time, but what do you most want in your life? And is it children to think about that independent of marriage, unless there's one particular marriage you're considering at that point, in which case definitely think about that marriage. But like, do you want to have children? Do you want to work as an ex? Do you, you know, like whatever your profession that you're passionate about, do you want to travel? Do you want to live in a particular, like think about those place, those choices for what your desires, passions, drive, and impulses are and start from, from there. And that's one thing that I, I mean, I have had those conversations, a lot of my friends who are unmarried, but who were wondering whether or not they were going to have children on their own. Very few of them were sitting around being like, I should have married that guy at 23. It was, I haven't met somebody with whom I want to start a family and I need to decide, do I want to have children or not have children? Because there's not somebody who's shown up, who's a good match for me. And that's the reality that I've seen having moved through my thirties and forties. It's very rarely somebody who's like, wow, I should have married Joe when I was 22. That most, most of my peers do not have that. They may indeed have questions about fertility and children and whether or not they want them or wanted them. Um, and some of them have chosen to have them on their own and some have not, but it's very rarely actually even about marriage because they just hadn't met anybody who was the right match for them. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. That resonates with, with my experience at the same time. I think a lot of the conversation around unrealistic standards and people just having like, you know, Mary Harrington, who I'm assuming you're not a big fan of, but you know, she has this concept, big romance. Um, and just this idea that, you know, basic facts and realities of our own biological limitations have been eclipsed by pretty un pretty fantastical ideas about what's possible. Um, and that manifests in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Who was the woman Megan, you would remember this. Who was it? Lori Gottlieb, the good enough guy. Yeah, so Lori the- Gottlieb is the one I was in the debate with um, Brad Wilcox with. So this was, uh, yeah, Lori Gottlieb wrote uh, 
of the book marry him the case for settling i think that was in 2012 around then and then there was the princeton mom remember that oh mary mary yes oh gosh do i remember okay but but and and uh, the princeton mom though so sarah you don't remember this but this was what like maybe 2014 or something yeah it was definitely so it was my book era whenever it was i think yeah so the princeton mom was this woman who was a um graduate of princeton and she also had a son or maybe two sons who were enrolled at princeton at this time and this is like the biggest nightmare if this person is your mother so she wrote a piece was like in the new york post or something about or maybe it was in the wall street journal hold on i'm gonna google it because it's amazing okay you can google as i'm talking so basically she was saying you know ladies if you want to have a family and you want to get married, you should find your husband while you're in college because never, there's no other time in your life where you're going to have this high quality of a dating pool and you would be foolish not to find somebody now. And she was a very unpalatable person overall. Like, I mean, talk about mortification of her own son. Everybody made fun of her. Um, She was not getting her message across in a very appealing way to say the least. But, you know, I have to say, I I had a conversation with Christine Emba, a Washington Post columnist who writes about these issues a lot um, on my other podcast a few months ago. And there was a kernel of truth in what the Princeton mom was saying. If you, especially if you go to a place like Princeton, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to, or certainly you have a more accessible pool of potential mates on your Princeton campus than you might when you go out into the working world, depending on what your career is. So I feel like that kind of messaging, it's just unfortunate that it got packaged in such a sort of negative school marmish way, because I think that there are ways to have this conversation that um, are more uh, effective <laughs> and and fruitful, perhaps. Yeah, anyway, and also- did, you, I did mean, anything that- come up? <laughs> Well, and the other thing is that, you know, we have to also, you we cannot take away from this the historic reality about marriage, which is that historically it has been an institution that has organized power along gender lines in its hetero form, in which it has been, in which labor and resources have been divided between men and women in ways that have been um, suffocating for women. Right. And that one of the so so there's there are these questions that you're bringing up. If you are somebody who wants to marry. Right. That's sort of what I was talking about earlier, about thinking about what do you want? Is finding a partnership a one of your top priorities is having children. One of your top priorities is having like and and it's not choose one. It's a constant balance. But yeah, it's sure. It's true. When we're younger in our, in, in, you know, for that matter in high school, like we are around people, our age and our peers, um, you know, at, at greater rates than, and it, and it shifts, but it doesn't, you know, I mean, I just, I, I can't stand the Princeton mom and I can't stand the, just marry him and just find a mate. But that's because I think, I think that there are so many different varieties of people and so many different impulses and desires and that there is just no, there's no making rules that, that around marriage and partnership that can 
possible or giving advice that can possibly account for the sheer diversity of human desire and and chemistry. And I the the Gottlieb thing that I that is terrible. I don't think Lori Gottlieb married a person and had like no and the- actually she's written she she had a child no she had a child with a sperm donor she's a single mother and she's actually written quite movingly about how she regrets not quote unquote settling she said my sta- you know she said my standards were were ridiculous and now um here i am and it's a good life in a lot of ways but it's perhaps not not what she would have chosen right but also, I I would argue that there are a lot of people who marry following her advice, who a lot, I think that's true of a lot of marriages, is you marry the person, like, that's something I've observed, um, is that there are a lot of marriages with, like, people who get married because they want the partnership, right? And they want the marriage. And it's a moment where they're anxious about having kids, and they choose the person they're with at that moment, and they have a marriage. And I think some of those marriages last, some of them don't, some of them are great, some of them aren't, but there are also huge numbers of those people who would probably say it's a good life, it's a happy life in certain ways, but I sort of regret some of the paths not taken. I think part of this is that we don't look at some of the very same regrets and second thoughts and and sacrifices. We We tend to see them around when women haven't married or had children, and those glare out at us because they actually are different from historic norms. And we don't look at the same, like those, we don't look at those same, a similar variety of regrets and about the people who had the normative paths, right? The people who did marry the just good enough guy, the people who did have the kids, because that's what, you know, they, they were told that they should want and that they looked for the security and they got it and it was good and they love their kids and they, they have a fine marriage or whatever, but they're also still thinking about, the things that they didn't do and the right. relationships they they're didn't not have. writing op-eds about it. Well, they're also right. not writing op-eds and books about it. I mean, the people that we hear from a lot are the people who are single and sort of in this ideas space and thinking about these things all the time. So I think that's a good point. I mean, I definitely, and, and... I can tell you that is, yeah, right. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, some of them do. Like, I think, isn't that what Leslie Bennett's partly the feminine mistake? Like the there are sort of feminist polemics yeah. that are like about having married and gotten into a situation that created degrees of economic dependence and then ha- being left in your 40s or your 50s. But without that's out of fashion right security. now. That's out of that was like, yeah. I, right. But that's I think that's that's out of it. I mean, I do think and we'll wrap this up in a minute, but I, I do think that. Uh, I mean, having been very much involved in that discourse over those years, I do think that something has happened where people have lost the plot a little bit and for some reason are not armed with basic facts of of biology. And that when you know, when, when you combine that with the fact that men are falling behind in this way and that they're not appealing to a lot of women as mates, you've just got like a whole bunch of things. Like I said at the beginning, there's like a whole bunch of things going on and it's really hard to tease them out. And the, the, the inclination is to make a bunch of generalizations about them, which is my favorite thing to do. So, you know, don't knock our hobbies around here, but yeah, I mean, it's, I do think that something is different now. Yeah. Um, I I don't disagree uh, with that. I think my I think my argument would be that there's always there's and things are different now in ways that we can't quite wrap our head around because they're about changing technologies, changing ideas of power and who has it, changing social status, all this kind of stuff. 
And we don't, we don't have the full picture in part because we're all in it at one age or another, right? Even you and me who are older and theoretically have made our choices, our stories aren't over. I mean, you know, I hope. And um, mine is. And and Sarah, yours isn't either, right? So like once you get a podcast, your story's over. (laughs) But but once you resort to doing this, yeah. But we are all like, I truly, truly think that if this conversation, if podcasts had existed in 1995 and your guests would have been Katie Royfe and what, like, you know, there, there would have been also like, things are changing, like things are changing and it's a desperate situation. And I think that if this podcast had existed in 1965, there would have been, and I think certainly had this podcast existed in 1945, right? Like they're all, and definitely in 1910, man, like, and in 1895. All of these times. Oh my God, I love this idea. Podcast, historically, podcasts of the late 19th century. I, I like you, that idea. You <laughs> would have heard people on those historical podcasts being like, everything's changing and we're losing like X. And, and there's a real risk that the people who are making these choices in accordance with these changing technologies and social mores are sacrificing a crucial part of their humanity. Like that's basically things that people were saying in popular discourse in 1920 and in 1890. That is like, that's, that was literally in the, in the journals of the time. So I simultaneously agree with what you're saying, which is that we are in a time of social tumult around partnership, sex, love, family formation, all of that. And I also think that that doesn't, and our tumult is specific to our era and our technology and our changing social mores, but that that does not set us apart more broadly from literally centuries of people who have come before us who have also found themselves in the midst of shifting social, political, technological ground and felt that things were at real risk. And and sometimes those things have been at real risk and they've been lost. And at other, you know, like, the, so that all these things are true simultaneously. All right, Sarah, I'll let you get in the last question. If you have um, one. It's going to be like a trolley question. If... <laughs> a trolley question. I don't want, I don't want <laughs> okay, a trolley but, question. Uh, so you, so, okay. So here's, here's what it is. Um, totally um, not related directly to these conversations, to, to the conversation we just had, but um, I'm interested in the ways in which, you know, it, all this stuff affects men, you know, the lack of partnership. And then, um, you know, further down the line, when women decide not to partner up with men um, and not to have a family, not to have a marriage, not to have, um, you know, that whole structure, they also take away the uh, role of fatherhood from men, right? Which they don't have a choice. They don't have really much of a choice in. So um, would you be supportive of, uh, you know, public funding and then, uh, you know, and then sponsor sponsoring of artificial wombs if, if that were to be something that becomes available? I was, was going to be my life. question, too. I was <laughs> going to ask about artificial wombs. If, if you ever that. becomes... If, <laughs> Do you know that you're giving voice to a radical feminist idea? Do you know that that is, do you know who Shulamith Firestone is? I've I've told her about Shulamith. I have Firestone. read Smith Firestone. I've I've read I've read okay. this, um, <laughs> and I think she's very she's very interesting. She's very smart, crazy, but smart woman. When um, you... but, but but would you 
are you pro artificial wombs or do you, oh, do you want us to slow down on that? But I think it's reproductive <laughs> equality for men. Uh, I'll tell you what. When we get to this future of which you speak, in which women are reproducing on their own and men are cut off um, by fiat from the experience of fatherhood and reproduction, and in which their like economic and social standing is um, profoundly inhibited by the changed gender power dynamics that that we have created moving into this future, and then I think it is a very rational um, moment to talk about artificial wombs. And I think that today, Monday, November 27th, unless you want to like go to Shulamith Firestone's idea, which was liberating women from like from childbearing, I like, which I don't think well, that is, too has come up. Right. Right. No, it's, no, it's, 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 it's been in, it's been in conversation from a number of angles and perspectives for decades. But I do not think that at this moment, I, I would much rather see all that public funding for, for getting men those artificial wombs. I would much rather see it directed to affordable housing and increased welfare benefits that would put men, women, and people of every gender um, on more equal and stable economic footing from which they could then make a series of better and healthier choices about everything, including partnership, individual paths and family formation. Okay. Well, considering that they have these same problems in Scandinavia, that's, I don't know how we're going to, how we're going to achieve that, but yes. So, okay. So we're not going to get an artificial womb sponsor anytime soon. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> not me. I'm not putting. I'm not putting my face on. Come the on, Rebecca, womb. help us. Uh, I think we. You know, we could just stop and do a host read for artificial womb every <laughs> mid roll every show, and uh, Sarah's life would be made. All right. Well, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. It's great to see you. Is there anything you, you want us to uh, know about where to find you? Um, anything like no, that? No, I, these days I try not to be found. I would like to not be found. <laughs> but you're writing regularly for New York Magazine. That, that is oh, yeah, your that, yes. sure. No, I don't mean yes. literally. Yeah, no, what no, you no, but, I also, but I also even mean on social media, which I'm like, I can't anymore. You know, yes, I write for New York Magazine uh, as, as a staffer there and my work is there and you can find my work there and you can read my books that are already published and maybe one day I will publish another book. <laughs> Yeah, hard to think about writing books anymore, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's something it is. about it that is like overwhelming in yeah. an unfortunate way. Well, anyway, okay. Thank you so much, Rebecca. We really thanks to both it. of thank you. you. I okay. appreciate it. Bye. 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 